Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got a very special guest with us tonight. It's Dr. Stephanie Manson-Brown, and um, we've been trying to tee this podcast up for probably the better part of a year now um, because of COVID, because of busyness and and so forth. Uh, we're finally here. So thank you, Stephanie, for joining us. Um, we've actually got, well, I've got a personal disclaimer to make because um, Stephanie does represent Allegan Aesthetics, who are an AbbVie company, um, and I'm a consultant and trainer and key leader for the same company. So I just was, you know, wanted to flag to the listeners and to anyone thinking there's something funny going on, we're not sponsored by Allegan tonight. This is a very open, unbiased and just free-flowing podcast. Um, one thing that, you know, I'm aware of as a trainer, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of medical compliance. We're not allowed to mention brand names, product names, um, or anything that, you know, is going to be sort of highly confidential. So just, just to give you some sort of lay of the land of where this podcast is going. Yeah, we're not being cagey. We just have to follow the rules. Yes. And Stephanie, <laughs> yeah. welcome. Um, any sort of introductory comments from your side, just so we can get that out the way and then we can crack on with an amazing podcast. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. I have been listening to the back catalogue and it's an impressive list of guests that you have. And so I feel very humbled and honoured to be included. So thank you. Um so, Jake, I think you covered most of it, to be honest. I mean, I think that it's important just to note that, um, you know, very much as a company, um, we abide by all the guidelines, um, especially um, looking at all the different regulators across the, the globe. And as such, there'll be no mention of any product or class of products in this talk or podcast. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the discussion anyway. I'm sure we'll cover a lot of really interesting topics. Yeah, it's been it's been quite the process. And we had a bit of a joke about this before we went on air. We've... Um, the time to get this podcast actually recorded. We've had to jump through a lot of hoops. We've had to go, as I said, we've had to have cavity checks and background checks and get special clearance. We're, f we're glad that we're finally here and able to have this conversation because it's been so great having chats with you before this podcast, just talking about what we were going to cover, going through rules of engagement and hearing more about your background. So I'm really, really excited to sort of have this discussion with you. Yeah, it's probably the, the most professional and polished uh, preparation to a podcast we've ever done. So thank you for teaching us something. I'm sure we're going to take something away from this. But um, Stephanie, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? We, we don't want to sort of do you a disservice. Tell us what your role is and what you do. Okay, well, thank you. So I'm, as, as you introduced, I'm Stephanie Manson-Brown. Um, I'm the head of clinical development for Allegan Aesthetics. And so my team really are responsible um, for navigating, anticipating and the clinical and regulatory challenges, um, while also delivering and focusing on effective clinical strategy. Um, very busy. Um, we have a very busy portfolio and, and pipeline portfolio. So there's lots going on. And um, this is 
um, been a particularly busy year for us um, because last year we were um, officially acquired by AbbVie. So we've been doing all of the background integration as well um, while we've been um, you know, navigating the pandemic. And so there's <laughs> been a lot of different moving parts that we've been having to um, you know, make sure that we are taking into account and that we're managing to take into, um, into our purview. Um, so my background is plastic surgery. Um, I left clinical practice around about 15 years. I always, I think I kind of mentally keep reducing that time and <laughs> um, because it starts to feel longer and longer and longer. Um, and, um, I, um, you know, left, um, a, a position of training to um, um, specialize in plastic surgery um, and then joined industry. And so um, it's been a very um, exciting and a very rich tapestry of experiences, both um, from my clinical practice as well as moving into industry. What made you want to move from plastic surgery into R&D? Because plastic surgery in itself is not a small undertaking. That, that's a huge amount of work and study. And most of the plastic surgeons that we've had on here, they've dreamt of being plastic surgeons since they were kids or something happened. I think Dr. Jeremy Hunt told that he was something happened with uh, some, he, someone. He put a finger back on someone during his general surgery training, I think it was. And he went, wow, plastic surgery is amazing. This is what I want to do. So how did you end up doing such an about face oh. and moving into clinical? I think it was an arm, not yeah. a finger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's still fascinating. Yeah. Hey, you know, let's not let's not um, dismiss the, the the gravitas of putting a re, re, reattaching a finger. Um, so yeah, I mean, David, to be honest, it's quite similar. I I wanted to be a surgeon pretty much from a very early age. I think around about age twelve, if I recall. Um, and you know, was pretty focused. Knew that I wanted to go to um, medical school and train to be a doctor. When I hit medical school, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a surgeon um, without even after kind of um, experiencing lots of the very interesting um, areas within the, the medical area. Um, and so I was pretty um, bullish about it and, and pretty narrow-minded, I'd say. You know, I kind of made up my mind about going into plastic surgery very early on as well. It was both, I think, doing some... Um, specialty attachments and, and, and modules while I was at medical school, as well as then going on and, and doing my um, basic surgical training. Um, and Jake, you'll know all, all about this, but this is where you go around um, and uh, over a number of years actually, um, you know, get experienced in all the different um, surgical um, specialties, so general surgery, um, also doing ER, um, accident and emergency, um, and orthopedics. And when I did plastic surgery, I absolutely loved it. Um, and it just kind of reinforced the fact that I thought that this was an, a fascinating specialty. I loved orthopedics as well, actually. And I think I just quite like the um, technical and, and, and very much a kind of being able to fix things. I mean, I think before I wanted to be a surgeon, I wanted to be a car mechanic. So I think maybe <laughs> there's a little bit of similarity there, especially on the orthopedic side. But plastics is such a wide and specialized area you know it's it's you can be you, you're treating lots of different parts of the body and a lot of very technical and um, thought process goes in and, and a lot of very exciting stuff and really kind of you know making a significant difference to people's lives and so I was pretty much focused and 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 knew that that was where I was headed and then um I can't even remember I'm just blanking on the actual year but there was they, they brought in a change and a shift with regards to how they were actually putting around the framework for training um, of doctors going from the kind of the more junior and um, doctor um, um, period into um, the specialized training side of things. And, and um, it was called Mo Modernizing Medical Careers. Um, and Jacob, it was before your time, actually, yeah. um, but it was something that, you know, they, they 
I think all different um, areas and industries do have kind of, I guess, revisions of how they set up the infrastructure for the training of their um, of their kind of, I guess, more junior and, and trainee um, groups. So this was something that was a significant change. Um, my, my year had graduated. We were called the Lost Tribe <laughs> because we were too young to fit into the old system. So we hadn't quite got past that transition period of being fully qualified um, in our areas of specialty and then we were a little bit too old to, to fit into the new system so we went and uh, it was quite a disruptive to be honest quite challenging I mean it was um I look back and and it was um quite a disturbing time I would say because the, you know there was no kind of clear path forward and when I was looking to um my um, seniors at the time they were holding up their hands saying I don't know what to um, advise and in fact one of my mentors suggested I move to Australia nice. um, and what a different situation that would have been I think if I'd taken his advice but at the at the time from a personal perspective I, I didn't want to move to Australia so yeah we were kind of left in a bit of disarray trying to decide and navigate this new system um, and um, the way that it was set up was that um, instead of uh, you know, interviewing for a particular unit, you interviewed for a region. So you could be interviewing for, to Scotland, for example. And although I know Scotland's a small country, it's quite a big region to interview. And Dundee's very different to Glasgow, and I'm from Glasgow, and and so Aberdeen's very different as well. So I think but it became quite a, a, a challenging situation, and I kind of fell out of love a little bit with then the National Health Service and the way that training was set up. So I, I, I made a change. I decided to leave, which was incredibly difficult because, as you say, David, um, you know, like the other plastic surgeons you've had on the um, podcast, I was pretty much focused. This is what I wanted to do. Um, and um, it was speaking to a colleague who suggested considering the pharmaceutical industry, which as a surgeon, I'd actually never thought about. I'd never thought about that as a career option. Um, and it was a way to be able to take your medical experience, your scientific scientific knowledge um, and being able to translate it into um, an area that would be translatable to your colleagues, to your peers, and as well as obviously speaking um, to healthcare professionals, as well as understanding the patient journey. So I transitioned into um, the pharmaceutical industry and the rest is history, so yeah. to speak. Did that answer your question? It did. Very comprehensive. <laughs> I feel, feel like we've known each other a million years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, how, how has COVID impacted everything that's been happening in the R&D department and I guess Allegan as a whole? I mean, how did you guys cope? Yeah, it's been, a, I mean, I think for everyone, right, it's been a very interesting 18 months. Um, and as I said earlier, we, we also were um, going through the process of integrating with Abbey. So, you know, we've been having to go through all of that aspect. So I think, you know, we've, we've become absolute experts in working from home. Um, we've been experts in being able to tap into virtual technology to be able to connect. And um, there were certain members who need to be um, based in the lab. And so they had to go through all the different procedures to ensure that they were safe. Um, and taking all the necessary precautions and, and wearing the protective gear as well as being mindful about the number of people there based in the labs. My team don't need to be in the labs. We're not lab based. So my team have pretty much been, um, you know, kind of getting used to working from home. For some people, that's been very difficult, you know, having young family school ho um, homeschooling, sorry. Um, and then obviously, you know, potentially looking after individuals who perhaps are, are um, unwell or caring for all you know elderly um, or older and um, relatives so it's been quite a, a, a quite a, a challenging situation but I've been incredibly impressed with the resilience um, of my team I'm, I'm very biased but my team have been incredible as well as um, our extended team and our colleagues and you know they talk about resilience being about um, you know kind of 
you know, man- managing to bounce back, but it's really about bouncing forward. So we've taken a lot of learnings and, and we have been looking at ways to connect. I mean, we've run a couple of workshops virtually, which has been quite interesting. Um, I've got 60 people in my team um, spread across multiple geographical locations. So both in Irvine and California and in, in, in different remote areas in the, in the US, Brazil, UK, um, Israel. So we've become very mindful of time zones mm-hmm. and as well as trying to look at, you know, I guess, innovative ways to connect. And so we've been doing different workshops, communication workshops virtually. Um, and um, I've also um, created a couple of playlists for my team in the last couple of, um, I think probably in the last sort of 18 months, just to kind of have that connection. So they've got some music to to um, inspire them by with. Oh, I you have recommend- to share that with us I can yeah. recommend some uh, good podcasts to put on your on your playlist as well <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah definitely always open to- <laughs> so the term R&D it's it's spoken about you hear it in the media you hear companies talking about all the millions and billions of dollars that they're spending on R&D and we all know it stands for research and development but what does it actually mean like what do you do every day like what are you researching what are you lo- what are you looking into <laughs> So it is such an umbrella term. I mean, R&D covers so many different aspects. And so it's impossible to talk about an average day. And um, I mean, there's so many different groups that sit within that, that group and uh, there's so many interdependencies. And we all, I mean, it very much highlights the need to be very collaborative teamwork. And, and I would say that that is one of the key things that we are very expert in collaborating and, and need to continue to work um, on and ensuring that we've got that collaboration. So. So just, I mean, let, let me just give you kind of a, an idea of some of the functions that sit within um, research and development, because that might help kind of to kind of put it into context. So obviously there's my team, clinical development, which um, I alluded to earlier, um, the group um, in um, biologic research. And so they're looking at the preclinical research and, and basically um, looking at um, both the discovery phase. And so there's um, identifying what could potentially be a candidate for a, either a drug or a, uh, or a device to take forward. And then you've got the team who um, study um, the safety and efficacy from a preclinical point of view. And, and that's using different um, um, research and models, including um you know, diff- different assays and different um, animal testing models. We've also got um, the tissue material sciences group who basically are trying to look at how materials interact with the human body um, and then using that, that information to, to continue the development forward. Regulatory affairs, I mean, they're the ones who are really instrumental in making sure that we've got all the right um, pieces and, and, and documentation in place to, to um, submit to get products approved as well as ma- ma- maintaining those products and market. And the safety and pharmacovigilance team who are, you know, ensuring that um, we are um, continually profiling the safety of our products and both in the development phase as well as in the post-market stage. And so when they're out in the market, medical affairs and they're a group and they're they're really about communicating the the scientific um, communications to healthcare professionals. Um, And then we've got a huge big group who oversee the operational side of clinical trials. And, And so that's them something where they are, um, you know, making sure that there's the, the right setup from a, a clinical site management perspective, making sure that we've got the right infrastructure in place to run these big um, clinical trials. And, um, you know, there's, there's a connection ensuring that we've got clinical trial supply available. Um, 
And, you know, the list goes on. I mean, I could keep going on and on with them, um, all the different functions. I mean, we've got clinical pharmacology, for example, and, and we've got a group called um, the um, Chemistry Manufacturing and Control, and they're the ones about making, uh, ensuring that we, we um, have got the um, product that's available to actually then administer, um, both in the clinical trial setting and then transfer across into upscaling for commercial production. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> Well, you've just shattered my fantasy. I, I imagine some <laughs> massive lab with thousands of people and test tubes and, and things bubbling away and, and you oh, walking around logic. in a lab coat <laughs> making oh, new corner products. Well. There's that as well. There's uh, that as well. Uh, joking aside, where, where are the teams based? Because I, I gather some of them are in Irvine in California. I'm assuming some are in the UK because that's where you're based. So how many are in the team and, and where where is everyone? So Allergan Anesthetics um, R&D has got over 500 people, um, but wow. we also work with a lot of um, our cross-functional partners on what we call the AbV side. I mean, we're all part of one company, but we do kind of sort of divide according to, um, you know, where our origins sit. Um, and um, I mean, we've got people based across across the different um, locations and so for example i'll just i mean I, I could list off just a couple but um for example and i think a lot of people know about westport westport's um where we've got a big manufacturing site we've got a big manufacturing site um in, in costa rica as well so there's um teams mm. who sit there we've got a manufacturing site in Prangy in france um and then we've got you know people based in different um um, labs in in California, for example, um, and we've um, also in Chicago, and um, now that obviously we're part of AbV. So there's there's multiple locations, and then you've got the regional locations as well, where you've got people based um, either um, located outside, uh, sorry, out of an office or, or remote working. So multiple locations globally. When it when it comes to uh, research and development, where does where does it start? Does it start with an indication? Does it start with a cool piece of tech or a new technology that's been discovered? And you go, wow, that'd be great. Let's let's see how we can convert that into a product or something or, or a device that people want. Where 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 does it start for you? Yeah, I mean, so that this is. I mean, I'll sort of put it simply. I mean, this is. Um, there's a whole whole teams working on this. Who are the experts here? Who would be able to speak to the specifics? Um, but really, I mean, that the ideas for what you know, what we want to potentially um, look at will come from either our own internal academic and, and research group, or it may come from an external source. So, and um, it might be um, a research institute or an academic so and um, and. Um, uh, institute externally we get a lot of very interesting ideas coming in from healthcare professionals I mean there's some incredible applications of already existing products and that they um, come to us and suggest that we may want to um, research new indications for example and um, so what taking all of these different aspects into account um, and, and I think maybe if we kind of look at maybe some of the um, internal um, aspects of, of looking at um, I've called maybe drug discovery i mean we've got it both on the device side as well as and on the um, drug side but you know there's there's a whole kind of process put in place to be able to identify kind of what's the target so what's the actual cellular um target that 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 um, the the um the molecule is going to be targeting it's kind of looking at it from an overall disease entity as well or a disease state or a condition or part of um, um, a biological process and so the, the, there is that aspect of, of ensuring that we've got the right target and then there'll be a whole load of um, different um, 
uh, and processes that will be put in place, for example, looking at and developing assays so that they can actually measure um, the, 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 the biological effects and ensure that they've got um, an understanding of the activity of the drug or the, or the device um, and, and looking at the impact it has on, on the um, on, on, on potential, you know, kind of so that we can understand what the impact will be in humans. Um, and then they'll um, look at kind of very kind of high um, tech, technical processes to be able to better understand um, different and, and look at different chemical and biological compounds to look at specific biological targeting, for example. Um, and once they've kind of identified, um, you know, where they think that we've got a hit on targets that we think we're going to be successful with that, and um, uh, candidate or you know look at and um, the the actual um, identification of of, of um, seeing that we we think that there's going to be um, a translation into efficacy into the clinical setting they will then kind of work up that 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 molecule and compound to to ensure that it is um, able to be administered and 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 that's something that actually you know there's so many different ways of administrating the product so there's different different aspects there with regards to kind of working out that 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 candidate once you've actually selected the candidate then it needs to go through a whole raft of working it through to ensure that it's going to be, um, you know, and tested from a safety and efficacy point of view, toxicology point of view, for example, um, and, and, you know, continuing to look at the um, route of administration and um, understanding what the effect is um, on the um, on the kinetics, the pharmacokinetics, for example, how will it be metabolized, how will it be excreted and how will it be absorbed, etc. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole... A whole raft of very highly coordinated processes that need to go into place to really even be able to identify if we've got a if we've got a product that we actually want to take forward into clinical trials, for example. I've got a question. I don't think we anticipated this in our planning, but I think it's relevant. Did you have to do any upskilling yourself? Because you know, you come from a surgical background and mm-hmm. I know exactly what your, your life was like. And then you walk mm-hmm. into the, you know, the corporate pharmaceutical um, aesthetic world, which is, you know, non-surgical by and large did you do you have to do any um i don't know skills in business or pharmacology or um even lab-based work anything like that yeah i mean there's so many different options and i think it's um really important especially um medics coming into industry and um, to kind of make sure that they are kind of expanding their their level of knowledge and and it, i think there is definitely the old adage you kind of once you're in and you're experiencing the different elements you know experience is really key but there's lots of different courses you can take so i actually chose to go down the route um of um, t- um sitting exams to get a diploma in pharmaceutical medicine and mm-hmm. um, you can then take that for, further to then get a master's and um, so i i thought that that was a very um important way for me just to be able to understand the principles as it relates to drug and, and device development for example as well as just understanding all the different um, inputs from functions. I mean, it's very kind of top line. It, it doesn't go into um, the specific details, but there are lots of different aspects as well. I mean, you can potentially go on and do, um, you know, uh, further qualifications to be able to get that kind of um, um, better understanding in a bit more detail. Um, some of my team have, for example, done MBAs. And there's a lot of, um, I think that's definitely a very attractive option for a lot of individuals because that gives you the business acumen, right? And it kind of allows you to kind of get a bit of an understanding on the commercialization side of things as well as kind of understanding just all the dynamics as it relates to business so there's there's multiple different options but as i say i find it incredibly helpful and um, sitting and, and getting my diploma in pharmaceutical medicine um, and as such i now then get um um go through the appraisal system with the um, faculty of pharmaceutical medicine 
So you you guys obviously research and develop your own products, but occasionally Allegan will will buy an existing product off another company, or a company will be absorbed into into your group. Uh, might be a device or an ex- or a new technology. So how do you guys go about that re- researching that company, making sure they're the right fit for Allegan, and then working them into your portfolio and so on? This continues to be a really key focus for us. I mean. We have be, had a very busy, um, um, it, I guess, list of activities over the last couple of years, and it's, it's continuing an, an area that we want to look at what the um, opportunities are externally, because, I mean, there's some incredible um, technology and, and really innovation that's taking place um, um, outside. So, so this is either, you know, through smaller companies or um, it might even come through some academic institutes. So what we do is we're, you know, exactly to your point, David, we're looking at kind of what would be the strategic fit. And so we look at what our current portfolio is and identify where the gaps are. Um, and we're looking at gaps as it relates to, um, you know, there might be certain and you know, to speak about it generally, there might be certain conditions or diseases where there is, and it's it's very much an overused term in, in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, but un, a significant unmet need. And um, but that really does speak to if there's you know there's um, certain aspects that there's not a whole range of different options, and sometimes there may not not be any options to be able to treat those conditions and um, effectively. So that's always um, a really very intriguing. I mean, if there if those if there's an area like that where um, there's a potential opportunity, then it's <laughs> there's a high interest, let's say, in in that aspect. I mean, we're always scanning the horizon for innovative science and technology, and so we're looking at how does it fit with our current development pipeline? Um, you know, are is it complementary? And that's really the key for us: is complementary. Um, you know, the, I think the especially on the device side, innovation. Is, is a very fast and, and dynamic field. And so the, the life of a device is much shorter than it is for like a pharmaceutical or a drug. And so there's a lot of kind of incremental innovation happening there. And I think that's where you need to um, be continuing to look for ways that you can be improving and improving on what's already available. And um, we also look at, um, you know, um, the, the, the performance or the efficacy, um, as well as looking at the tolerability profile. And the, the route of administration. So sometimes, you know, if there's, or, you know, just to speak at a high level, if there was um, um, a product being developed that was topical that you could just put on your skin rather than injecting it um, and it had as good a, a, an efficacy profile or even better, then of course that would be a very attractive option um, to pursue. So absolutely, there's lots of different aspects. I mean, and then, you know, kind of there will be, I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> yeah, again, where there's lots of teams, um, but we do have teams um, who are dedicated to um, evaluating the opportunities. And they'll look at the evaluation as it relates to the commercial opportunities, look at it from a research and development, the scientific um, application of that technology. And um, it will also depend on how early in the phase they are with their development. And, you know, there's a lot of um, opportunities that look great in the earlier phase, but may not necessarily translate into clinical practice. And so you need to make sure the science that they're generating actually does have the translatability, let's say, because you can look at different ways to measure um, efficacy um, in a preclinical setting, setting that isn't actually, you know, and translated into humans. And so there's lots of different aspects that get taken into account there as well as just better understanding the mechanism of action. Is this truly doing, you know, can we explain why we think that we'll see the effects that we see. Um, and, you know, kind of, I guess, taking a very much an unbiased look at the clinical need and the 
the, the sustainability of the approach? Is this something that's going to be midterm? Is there, is there it, it, we also look at it as a platform? Is there opportunities to use the scientific technology platform and then, you know, look at other opportunities? And that might be either, you know, continuing to look at other indications within that product pl platform or using that technology to be able to then further develop it. Um, and so, Lots of different aspects, and and we also very much we will will reach out to um healthcare professionals, as well as running market research to understand what the patient needs are and the consumer needs are, for example. But our healthcare professionals are really key to help steer us and, and really kind of identify what their needs are and also um, represent what the patients are for their needs. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, what the needs are for their patients, rather. <laughs> um, going to ask a question, but um, if it's if it's a no no, I guess we can edit it out later. Um, we did a, a really. A, really intriguing episode with Dr. Stephen Liu. Was it about six months ago, Jake? It would have been about that. Maybe it was a year. I reckon it was more than a year. And he was talking to us about a, a product that he brought to you guys. He'd seen mm -hmm. um, someone uh, developing a product for increasing the elasticity within the body. So excuse my, mm -hmm. <laughs> excuse my explanation. Yeah. And he took it to you guys and you're like, wow, this is really, mm -hmm. really exciting. So I guess that for me, that was a prime example of how someone spotted something that was being developed for a completely different application and then thought, oh, that could be interesting for aesthetics. And you guys were like, yeah, yeah this is really interesting. So I'm assuming you're working on that. And from what he told me, it sounds very, very exciting. So that was just, I just wanted to sort of bring that up as an example of how things might work, for example. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. It's yeah. a great example though. I mean, that, that, that's a great example and that happens all the time, right? And it may be that they have either seen, the, 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 the healthcare professionals seen the, um, the data or they've or they may even have had and um, they, they they may even have a collaboration or be conducting some of the research for these companies and so you know this is it's such a it's such a you know a a, a key aspect or key and um, link that we have and and i think you know it's funny because actually i was on um i was presenting at a meeting with Stephen at the weekend just gone and he was berating me as to why it was taking so long and i was just <laughs> explaining to him that development and um, takes time and um, because we need to make sure that we are um complying with all the necessary and um, regulations and ensuring that we're you know putting forward um you, you know the right level and the right process behind and developing and um, products but um great example david yeah well if anyone out there's got some great ideas let jake and i know so that we can sell it to <laughs> alligan and retire dm us on instagram <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well actually i understand this Stephen. I, I don't know how he came across the company but they were local in sydney and uh and, and i don't think the company even recognized you know the gravity of what they had on their hands and so it was nice to have a doctor to sort of you know link the company to yourself yeah, and and well, it's. I think I think there's um. You know, when I when I joined um Allegan, gosh, it was about seven and a half years ago, and I left Pfizer, and so yep. I used to work for Pfizer, and you know, Pfizer are pretty much. I think certainly when, um, when I was there, you're you're you are led to believe you are pretty much in the best company in the world. I think all the companies say that, regardless of where you're sitting, um, and so when I um told my then boss that I was um, planning to um, leave to go and pursue um, aesthetics um, and aesthetic medicine within industry. He pretty much told me <laughs> I, was, well, I was making the wrong decision and that if I stayed much longer than 18 months, my career would be over. The reason I'm saying this is that I think back, I think aesthetic medicine has really exploded recently. And I think it used to be seen as being kind of a, a very kind of frivolous kind of area and that, that um, it wasn't, there was a bit of, I guess, a scientific um, um, professional snobbery going on and, and it's something that 
that really is growing. And there's so many exciting technologies that can be applied to aesthetics and can be applied to skin biology. And, um, you know, Science of Aging is, uh, and I know you both are well aware of the Science of Aging platform and um, that I called, um, founded. But this is where it's really interesting seeing some companies who are looking at areas that are based more around chronic disease and age-related and disease conditions or oncology. And they're beginning to actually look and go, actually, the application to aesthetics could be huge. It's actually an interesting point because, you know, even I think within our own industry, sometimes we gloss over um, the hardcore science and and, and we sort of mm. dumb it down and you go to conferences and it's it's all very glitzy, but it, it it's not always scientific. And, you know, maybe our, our peers in, in other sort of pharma sort of um, companies and so on, they, they, they probably have that attitude that it's a bit superfluous because that's how we represent ourselves. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that we can do much better as, yeah. a, as an industry. Well, what do we refer to, affectionately referred to as the dark arts here in Australia? <laughs> yeah. For all those Harry Potter buffs out there, there's a nice little reference for you, but that's, that's what we call it here in Australia. Well, that's what it's referred to as. But, it, but it's a great point. And, and actually, and I'm going to do a little bit of um, self-promotion here and not self-promotion, but of the science of aging. I mean, that's what, that's what was really the driver behind developing and creating the science of aging. I mean, I was, um, Jake, exactly the same experience as you. I mean, I, I was going to these conferences and yeah, I mean, they're in glamorous locations or they're, and I should be careful about saying glamorous locations. They're in nice locations, let's say. And, and there's a lot of very kind of the, the, the professionalism and it's very polished. Um, and I kind of start to get a bit, bit frustrated um, at the lack of science. I mean, there was a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is important, but there was not the um, same kind of, you know, more robust um, research put behind things. And I thought, actually, I'd really like to be able to bring a platform where there is that you know, kind of methodical approach with regards to how we're actually thinking about aging instead of just thinking, right, well, we'll inject a product here or there because we're trying to chase the outwardly appearance of it. Let's really think about what it is and choosing the right um, modality for that patient according to the process, you know, the, the, the I guess the, the stage in which they are with respect to aging. And I think um, there was, it was also, um, you know, convincing that, um, and, and I had um, lots of interesting conversations with them um, um, our head of R&D at the time, and he was a big supporter of um, of the um, platform. But, you know, just c- reminding him that aesthetics does have some really, really good, robust science behind it. And it's something that we as a company um, are very, very keen to ensure that we are doing. We put the the, the robust and um, credible science behind our products. And so Science of Aging was kind of born to say, look, there's more that we can be thinking about as it relates to understanding aesthetics. It's not just a frivolous area. And, you know, Jake and David, you know very well that, you know, that the, the, the benefits of aesthetic treatment go way beyond and um, potentially this beautification. You know, there's an incredible um, psychosocial benefit. Absolutely. And you, you're sort of talking about the, the science of aging and from everything that I've read in articles and hearing people on other podcasts and, you know, people like Dr. David Sinclair, who I know took part in, in, in your, in some of your yeah. recent, um, in, in part of the science of aging is that we are now recognizing aging as a disease, um, mm-hmm. in terms of how it, how it impacts the human body. And you're sort of seeing that this almost like a collision course between, you know, things, the way that anti-aging has been treated traditionally, externally. So treating the symptoms of aging through various devices and products, but then you've had this other world, sort of, you know, manifesting itself and, and, and treating aging on, on a cellular level. So with things like stem cells and so on, and we're starting to see those two worlds sort of start to collide 
Mm. And it seems like that's probably where the future is going. Correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's going to be, you know, treating things symptomatically um, externally and then also attacking it internally as well through, you know, some of the things I was just referring to. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, if we are sort of thinking about what the future for aesthetic medicine is, I think there will be a shift in more holistic approach and, and looking at um, very much, you know, identifying the root cause. And um, so, I mean, our treatments at the minute are looking at the signs and symptoms of aging. And I think that there will definitely be a shift. I think that will continue to be important, but then there'll be a shift to really be able to identify what the cellular mechanisms are involved in aging. And that's exactly to your point. I mean, I think the the, the aging and longevity and research and, 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 and area of science is really, I mean, it, for those who've been in it, it, it's been around for decades, but I mean, it's really exploded recently. And I think, you know, our mindset of, of understanding kind of that progression of different conditions and as, as it relates to aging has changed significantly so we kind of think it of as kind of a separate isolated processes but we now know they're linked to the, the key fundamentals which are called the hallmarks of aging and that they translate across and um, multiple different organs and you know exactly as you're saying kind of looking at system systems as well as looking at, um, at the interdependencies and certainly um the, the thinking has changed significantly since i was at medical school so i think that that's re- going to be a really exciting opportunity and and one of the things as well is that and you know it's my opinion and my personal opinion but i'd love for um chronological aging as being a measure of success of aesthetic treatment to be something of the past I'm, i think in the future it will become irrelevant and um, because it's just really kind of measuring your kind of time period from a temporal perspective i think what will become more important is biological aging and biological aging is kind of more the indication of of your sort of status of health and and health you know kind of i guess uh, understanding um the different um i guess um, from a from a from a, um, a damage and accumulation of damage, and so that's something that you know is going to be in its in an area that we're very interested in is looking at the biomarkers as it relates to being able to better understand what it means to be um, from from an aging perspective, look at biological aging rather than chronological aging. Because I think chronological aging is something that you know we talk about trying to look younger, but it's more about kind of shifting this mindset to going, I want to look good, I want to feel good, and and you know kind of like identifying the fact that you know it's not so much about trying to shift time, um, you know, to ten years before. It's more about kind of maintaining health and maintaining healthy tissue and cells. And so I think that there's going to be um, a real. It, it's, it'll come and, and I hope sooner rather than later, but there's going to be a real shift. Well, Jake and I just turned 41. So you've got nine more years <laughs> until we're 50 until you come out with all these great products to stop us from aging. So then, yeah, we, can hurry do, up, Stephanie. then we can do inside aesthetics forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating concept because, you know, of course, injectors, we're, we're almost sort of hiding the signs and, you know, you're still aging inside and, and, you know, your bone is still resorbing and so on. But we will get to a point and, and I'd be interested to, to sort of see where you think these things are really going to collide on a practical aspect where, you know, you, you will probably still have aesthetic doctors, whether we inject or, or do something topically or mm-hmm. through a device, you know, because you might have, um, you know, issues with trauma or, or surgical issues or, you know, we might not need our injectable products anymore, but we will be utilised in some way. But then you've also got these anti-aging doctors who are, you know, literally slowing down or maybe even reversing time. Well, so it's yeah. kind of a, a, an yeah. unusual concept that we probably haven't even got our head around yet. Well, think about how easy your job's going to be if everyone's got perfect <laughs> skin and they all look like they're 30 forever and all you do. I think I'll be out of a job. Well, no, you're just you'll be focusing on enhancing. <laughs> 
commencements. You'd be working on these perfect canvases and you're going to get amazing. Tear troughs will be a dream. Never a problem ever again. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Stephanie? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, the way that I look at it is, and so I, and it, again, this is my opinion. I, I'm, I'm not such a big fan of anti-aging because I think aging is a privilege. Um, but I think, you know, it's about looking at ways that you can maintain health right so yes there's a and there's a lot of focus that kind of and you know the reversing aging let's say but let's actually look at it more that the the maintaining the health aspect and that's going to be really key so that you know you will end up having um less com you know i guess complications related to the aging process or less conditions that are related to the aging process and so you know as we're looking we know we're we're all living a little bit longer. We're all going to be working longer, and and for some people that's um, quite um, um, overwhelming. But I think we we need to be bracing ourselves for for working older. So we need to be looking at interventions that can help ourselves both physiologically, physically, and and mentally be better equipped and um, to be um, you know um, I guess part of the whole kind of interactions of workforce as well socially um, in our later later decades. And so I think that, you know, that there's definitely going to be a move. I, I don't think, I, mean, I think aesthetic medicine will continue. And I kind of almost see it as being part of the bigger, um, let's say, aging science. And so it's all very well at kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, I'm having interventions to help with, um, you know, kind of um, maintain health generally. But if you are not doing that from an external experience, then you're going to have a bit of a disconnect. And so it's about ensuring that you're putting in the right measures to be able to, um, you know, uh, you know, have that link and, and that people are feeling better. And that also does relate to their um, appearance. And so from that from that aspect, it's going to be really key. So you, so you know, there's no. So I think that the, there's, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely um, evidence out there to demonstrate that there's, um, you know, different aspects that um, need to be taken into account when you're looking at a positive um, aging and the psychology of positive aging. And I do think that the aesthetics is going to sit in with that. And you know, if you have got better, increased self confidence and that you um, feel generally better about yourself, that's going to have then a well, indirect effect on, on a positive psychology of aging. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we could wheel back to sort of the, the world of R&D, I'm just curious to sort of get the listeners to understand how how research works. And, and maybe you could just, you know, we don't need to name a product, but let's say there's a new product that you think is, um, you know, going to be useful in the future. Take us through what happens from, you know, um, Stephen Liu discovering this thing in Sydney, all the way to market, <laughs> you know, what are the phases and, and, you know, real bullet points, but what happens? Sure, sure. So we've got the preclinical phase, and I think I alluded to that earlier. So that's just kind of ensuring that we have got a, a good understanding of the safety and the efficacy of the product before it is um, introduced into humans. So that's really key. And actually, we um, need to have that that evidence there before we can actually even apply to the regulators to then have um, the investigation uh, investigational and um, new um, drug um, application or looking at it from um, an investigational and um, device exempt status for a device and that's speaking of for, with FDA terminology so that's really important to make sure that we're kind of um, you know really profiling um, the product and um, very clearly and then it will be transitioned um, into the clinical phase and through the clinical trial phase um, and that that will differ whether it's a device or a pharmaceutical product. Um, so device is a term that kind of covers so many different um, as aspects and terms and so it can include um, implant software and diagnostic instrumentation. And so those um, are 
often used for diagnosis, prevention or treating um, conditions. And then a, um, a pharmaceutical product will actually um, have its effects through pharmacological, obviously immunology, immunological or metabolic actions. So depending on where it sits on the device, a pharmaceutical will be different in relation to how we actually de design the development um, program. And obviously they are regulated differently. Um, when we're looking at um, designing um, the clinical program and the, the, the development program, and this, this is even important when we're looking at designing um, the, 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 or, or get a, get a, getting a better understanding from a pre-clinical perspective, but it's looking at what we call a target product profile. Um, and we call it TPP, that's the acronym used. Um, and so this really kind of outlines the desired profile um, and characteristics of a target product. Um, and so it's either aimed at a particular disease or condition. And it's really important, I think, the kind of the phrases that, you know, you, you want to basically begin with the end in mind. So what is it that you're trying to achieve? And then you can put all the designs in place and to make sure that you've got all the right measures in place. So, for example, we'll be looking at the... Um, the, the clinical use, the expected clinical use, and that will then kind of help us um, um, decipher which endpoints we're going to use. And um, endpoints are really key. And um, you know, it's, it's when we're kind of talking generally about aesthetic end, endpoints, and um, are very much generated um, and assessing the um, effect of, in relation to the um, application of the product from an um, anatomical perspective, as well as looking at change on, on a photonumeric scale, for example. And we'll also look at the um, the timing, the scheduling, you know, is this going to be a one-off um, treatment or is it going to be multiple treatments? Um, how long? What's the duration of effect? Um, what are we aiming for? What do we want to try and, and, and um, I guess, Developed with regards to the durability of effect, we're looking at the different um, patient populations. For, for example, if you're looking at um, a disease um, area, um, we'll also want to look at, um, you know, ensuring that we've got the right, um, uh, the, the, um, the right. Um, a design in place to to um, really elicit the safety profile as well and the tolerability profile. So when you look at it, there's lots of different phases that are included. So um, if you're looking at it from a drug perspective, um, we start off with phase one. Phase one is kind of what we tend to term the first in human um, stage. And this is where it's a much smaller group of healthy um, volunteers. Um, and this is really to determine what's the most frequent side effects and, and how to understand um, how the drug is going to be metabolized, for example, or excreted. Um, so it's really to kind of elicit the pharmacokinetics um, of that product. Um, and then, you know, once that has um, that there's no safety concern has been established and that then been progressing to phase two, mm -hmm. um, phase two um, is um, really where you start to kind of get a better understanding of the efficacy of the, um, the, the product. Um, and this is something as well where you um, often see at, at this phase, this is where you see the um, the dose ranging. So, so it's about understanding what is going to be the optimal dose for um, taking this product forward. And um, then once you do kind of have the data from the phase two, you're, you're evaluating all the different endpoints from an efficacy and a safety point of, point of view to identify ultimately which you think will be the ultimate um, dose to take forward. And then when, you, when you've made that decision, then you move into phase three, which is a much bigger population. And by, by, by 
So by phase two, you are then treating the intended patient population that the drug is intended for. Um, and then moving into phase three, there are much larger um, upscale clinical trials that really do drill down into being able to explore the efficacy and the safety of the of the, the product in, in question. So that's really kind of about kind of generating all the um, different levels of evidence that then can be submitted to the regulators um, to, to gain market approval. On the device side, it's slightly different. Um, Traditionally, actually, um, in some parts of the world, um, devices have been approved without having significant clinical data. That's now kind of changing, and there's definitely a, a much greater need for um, bringing in clinical data for some of the higher category um, of devices um, on, in, across, across the globe. And certainly, and there's been a shift in the regulations in Europe to really kind of match a little bit um, or have a have a more similar approach to um, the US and FDA. Um, with device, we look at it from um, you know, taking it from the preclinical stage into what we call feasibility. And that's really kind of trying to ascertain the safety profile um, of the product and the tolerability of the product. And then the pivotal trials, so the, the main kind of, um, I guess, generation of data to demonstrate evidence and, and safety on a larger patient population that will then be submitted to the regulators. Right. So quite quite a lot goes into a product once it hits the shelf. It might have been 10 years. I mean, what, what is the average time that it would take for a product to go from conceptual to, you know, being in Dr. XYZ's clinic for- in, Injectable product. Let's keep it simple. Injectable product, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the average is kind of as quoted normally is around about 12 to 15 years. Oh. And I think, you know, kind of the oh, average wow. cost is around oh. about $1 billion. But this changes. I mean, there, there, there's constant innovation going on to try and look at ways to um, find, um, you know, and, and, and this is this is changing, but there's ways to kind of um, speed up the different processes of, of bringing in automation for um, target selection, for example, um, or sorry, candidate selection. Um, and, there's, and there's a huge big, um, I guess, um, opportunity for AI to be able yeah. to analyze multiple chemicals and, and molecules um, on a much quicker basis yeah. than it would have done traditionally in the lab base to be able to identify some of the um, potential um, um, candidates to take forward. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, one of the reasons why it takes so long is that you need to ensure that, you know, you are appropriately um, evaluating the clinical uh, efficacy and safety um, on larger patient populations. And when you start to increase the sizes of those trials, it takes longer to recruit the patients as well as, kind of, you know, um, having it from just the operational elements. So there's lots of different steps in place, but I think, you know, there's, there's often, um, there's always newer options coming in new, newer technology to find ways to start to, um, you know, be able to um, reduce the guess the timelines. Yeah, I don't think people realise how long this takes. So, Stephen, you need to relax. You still got a few more years to wait until, you, <laughs> until your product's coming out. I, I said that to him. <laughs> so, thank you, David. <laughs> um, Jake and I did this wonderful series going back, oh, maybe a year ago now, where we did. It was called Beauty of the World, where mm. we were talking to healthcare providers, doctors, nurses all over the world, and getting an understanding of how they approach aesthetics, looking at you know different ethnicities, people's faces, features, skin colour 
cultural influences and so on. The list was very eye-opening experience. I mean, it sounds obvious when you think about, you know, diversity in different parts of the world, but I think that, you know, I know, especially for the clinics that, that, I've, earned, that I've owned over the years, you're, you're looking at, you know, sort of Caucasian faces, you know, female sort of certain age group, and you're starting to see now different approaches um, starting to unfold as, we, as our skills get better and we're appreciating the nuances of different ethnicities and so on. So what's your position, I guess, Allegan's position in terms of diversity and how you're approaching different faces and different ethnicities around the world? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge focus for us. And, and actually, and we have our uh, diversity and inclusion clinical trials and um, task force set up exactly to address this. And this is something that um, really, um, as you say, when you look at aesthetic medicine, that tends to be focused on white females um, of a particular age group. And so that's something that, you know, we need to be changing because we need to be more representative. And it's kind of one of those kind of catch-22s. If you're only generating data in that patient group, then and then it kind of translates to the marketing side of things, then you are always going to be attracting that group of patients and um, to be seeking aesthetic treatment. But we know that that's something that um, we need to um, change. And I think, you know, one of the things that we, we know is that the um, that the, there's a definitely a, a, a change in concept and we do need to change the mindset. So it's not about having like a fixed group, I guess, um, cluster of aesthetic goals um, to be focusing on. Instead, it's about appreciating the differences and appreciating the different um, structural differences as well as skin types to be able to identify which are the right products for um, different individuals and um, with regards to their um, needs and, and their, their makeup and their background. So one of the things is that, you know, when we're looking at... Um, I don't, I mean, we, we're looking at it on a number of different levels, excuse me, <clears throat> because, uh, you know, we, we recognize that, um, you know, to be, um, we, it needs to be um, a very much a focus to ensure that we um, are identifying exactly what we mean by diversity in the first instance. And so diversity, of course, includes um, race and ethnicity and an understanding and, you know, what, how that um, impacts um, aesthetic um you know, I guess, needs and goals, but it's also about looking at, you know, different skin types as well as, um, you know, the the um, colour looking at skin types from an ageing perspective and um, understanding gender, understanding um, geographical location, looking at different age groups um, and, and understanding also the influence of, influence of culture. So there's a lot of interdependencies and intersectionality there. Um, so this is something, um, you know, we want to um, ensure that we are putting in the right um, measures to be able to address this and and make sure that we are representing those who've traditionally been underrepresented in clinical trials. So we're looking at different ways, for example, and um, as I say, defining diversity in the first instance, um, looking at uh, measures that we can expand the um, our investigator um, investigators that we engage with to ensure that we have got diversity and inclusion represented in our investigators. And um, we know that often there's there's m multiple different um, you know um, barriers to patients being involved in clinical trials, and and that can be. Um, you know, due to a number of different things about maybe potentially not having um, the the awareness of, um, you know, the clinical trial awareness of the treatments or the benefits of the treatments. And so we need to make sure that we are reaching out and and, and raising awareness of the benefits of, of being involved in a clinical trial and, and what aesthetic, um, you know, treatment options can offer. Um, and we are looking at um, different, what we call patient centricity measures and with that respect. And we're also connecting with the societies and to, to you know, ensure that we are um, finding um, ways to support newer investigators coming in um, and um, also looking at different um, aspects of, of um, being able to um, look at 
endpoints as well. So endpoints is really key. And, and I think, you know, traditionally endpoints have been set up with a white female in mind, even indications in the products um, that have been studied have been looking at those particular indications. So we need to make sure that we are taking into um, account the different needs of different patient populations. And then when we're looking at endpoints, ensuring that those endpoints are valid to allow for diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and so that's something that we're also um, looking at from a digital technology perspective as well. That's great. And I know one of the other focuses within the diversity um, sort of aspect is also looking at um, transgender patients as well. So, yeah, I've got a couple of transgender patients and it's a fascinating field. Yes, it's quite niche and many injectors, you know, sometimes feel a little bit lost because they've never been trained in that way. So I know that, um, you know, that you're also looking at sort of trying to help education and representation of trans transgender patients. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually it was a just trying to think as a couple of months ago actually we um had um, a group of experts um, who do treat these um this patient population these individuals on a regular basis to better um help advise us with regards to how we can um understand the needs and it's 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 a very important um aspect of just kind of um, ensuring that we've got the right terminology in place by understanding the different processes i mean we've got trans uh, transgender patients we've also got non-binary and it's about really understanding what the their specific needs and goals are in relation to aesthetic treatment it's also about raising awareness that these products and that there are products available and um, to be able to treat um patients who do want to change change um, their um, aesthetic uh, appearance to be able to better express themselves as they want to and how they identify. Um, and so there are so many different um, aspects of, of being able to better understand how we can support um, individuals who do, um, you know, who do express themselves differently to the, the, the I guess, the more social norms of, of masculine and, and feminine. And it's something that, um, you know, um, when we've been looking at our clinical trials, we've been looking back at even how we capture um, identity and, and ensuring that we are being inclusive um, in relation to even, um, you know, the capturing demographic data to be more inclusive. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it, how far we've come as an industry. Um, I think back to when I first started in oh no, 2006, something like that. And, um, you know, we were treating nasolabial folds maybe. It's just like now we've just become so advanced in terms of how we approach different faces, as you're saying, different ethnicities, cultures, transgender, and so on. It's just, it's just fascinating to see how far we have come from just, I guess, very humble rudimentary beginnings to how advanced we're becoming now in the way we approach different faces and technology. It's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even since I started 2008, you know, really basic stuff, exactly what you just said. And now we're commanding the whole face, sort of total face approach, even the neck, skin, hands, um, devices, you know, and we're working in conjunction with dermal therapists and dermatologists and so on. It's amazing. So I can't wait to see what happens in the pipeline in the future. Um, one of the yeah. things I wanted to get my head around was um, working with these regulators in Australia, we've got the TGA, uh, and the UK, uh, is it MHRC? I can't remember the name now. <laughs> so many acronyms to remember. Sorry, MHRA. And then, yeah. of course in the States, you've got the FDA. So mm -hmm. how do you, how does, um, you know, a company like, uh, like Allegan or any pharmaceutical company work with the regulators and, and what actually do the regulators do here once a product arrives on our shores for them to sort of look at? 
I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a continual dialogue with the regulators. And I think that that's really key. It doesn't just start and stop with applying and, and submitting your data. Um, it is about ensuring that, um, you know, we are keeping that communication um, open um, and, and ensuring that um, we have, you know, got um, a good understanding of what their needs and their requirements are, as well as, you know, putting forward what um, how we represent the needs of the patients and, and the healthcare professionals. So, for example, like if, if you know, just to use Australia's example um, and submitting to the TGA. And um, so we basically need to ensure that we are providing them with the right level of information and evidence to ensure that they um, have got um, the, I guess, the um, the confidence and the, the reassurance that this and um, the products have been studied effectively to be able to ensure safety um, and then obviously efficacy as well for the um, the outcomes. So um, what we do is that we're looking, um, for example, of kind of um, submitting the clinical trial evidence. Um, and so that will be, um, you know, looking, um, including um, literature right there, but obviously the, the, the data that we've gen generated through our clinical trial program. Um, if it's a device, for example, we'll be submitting the design dossier, and that um, basically relates to how the product has been designed in the earlier stages. They're also looking for quality assessment to make sure all the right controls are in place to ensure that there is a consistency um, across the board in relation to um, the manufacturing and the safety element of, of the, um, the product. Um, we'll also look at labelling requirements. We need to make sure that we're representing um, the data appropriately to healthcare professionals and to patients as well to ensure that the, the right level of information is provided, especially from the safety profile perspective um, and obviously efficacy to ensuring that healthcare, um, healthcare professionals and, and patients can make the right decision for which product is the right one for them. And um, so, I mean, ultimately, um, we will um, submit this evidence um, and if if this evidence supports the request that we put forward, and what we will do is so that we will request that this product is um is um, marketable in a particular patient population population and for a particular use, um, and also we will also be um, putting forward the data to demonstrate the the dosage, the frequency, and um, the route of administration, for example, um, and and sometimes there will be a targeted patient population if it relates to I guess severity categories, for example, in different disease states. Um, so that's really I mean obviously if the, the evidence supports the request, the medicine or the device will then be approved. Um, and as requested in the application. But then it doesn't just stop with that. I mean, there will be that continual um, generation of safety reports to ensure that we are providing a continual evaluation of the, um, the performance and the safety of the product. Um, and also the regulators do have got a very clear um, process in place for healthcare professionals or anyone basically to, to report any adverse event and um, so that we can be continually monitor, monitoring the safety of the product and clinical use. I mean, presumably Australia, the States, the UK, we've got, you know, similar-ish uh, populations and, and demographics and so on. So have you ever had, you don't have to mention the product's name, but have you ever had an instance where, you know, America said yes, UK said yes, and Australia said no, or, or, or a different, you know, vice versa? There, there are evidence, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking what we, I guess what sometimes will happen is that we may, and just just to make it kind of, I guess, take it a step back, we do get different requirements requested from us 
by different regulators, which right. can be quite challenging when you're looking at a global clinical trial um, program. So there are times where we will set up um, or look at um, running a clinical trial to meet the needs of the FDA, for example, and mm -hmm. running a clinical trial to, to meet the needs of the European um, 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 regulators. So this is where there will be sometimes differences because they are connected, but they do have certain specific requests and requirements that are and um, that are particular focus for them and um, I'm just trying to think Jake if there's any example I can't think of anything off the top of my head and um, it would I, I think um I mean what's happened in the past and on the device side for example there have been different requirements or levels um, required of evidence and um, and to then get approval. So, for example, FDA was always seen to be kind of the highest hurdle in relation to drug, sorry, device approval. Mm -hmm. But that has changed, and and I think the, the the regulators globally are now requiring a much higher level of of data and clinical evidence to be submitted. Okay, Arthur Swift was out here. Oh, I can't remember the dates anymore. It was like, it's like pre-COVID, post-COVID. 2019, I think it was. Yeah, 2019. And he was talking about all the wonderful things that are coming down the pipeline with AI and how that's going to help us move forward. And, you know, you might have these little bots that come out and, you know, do everything for you. Maybe we don't need people like Jake anymore. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> these things are possible. But how, how does AI sort of fit into your clinical research products that might be coming in the future? I'm assuming it helps you a lot more efficiently. You sort of alluded to it, in, in, you know, earlier on in the discussion. Where do you see I, I, sorry, artificial intelligence fitting in and where do you think it's sort of going as we sort of move into the future? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think there is absolutely, I mean, the possibilities are endless, really, I would say. I mean, it's, I think one of the things, I mean, you can look at it from so many different aspects and, and you know, speaking from a, there's a the, the, there's the application to consumer and, and different ways to be able to, I guess, um, communicate with consumers and to give them different um, tools to be able to identify um, their own um needs as in relation to biologic needs or, or you know, needs in, in relation to different treatment options. And one thing um, that, you know, there's to speak to can, from, from our own perspective, we're looking at, at the way that we can bring in machine learning and, and artificial intelligence with respect to um, running clinical trials. And so I think that there's some um, huge opportunity and to speak to aesthetics in particular. Um, imaging is kind of the key fundamental of how we assess um, efficacy and um, currently what we do, what, how we measure it is on photonumeric scales, for example, and this is where you have um, grade grading severity uh, and, and photographs and, and text that identifies and, and defines what that um, severity is. And it's quite a blunt measure if you think about it to really kind of be able to um, demonstrate some of the um, incremental change that you can see with them um, treatment. Um, and often, so on the pharmaceutical side, for example, you need to demonstrate a two-grade change in those photonumeric scales, whereas on devices, a one-grade change. But often that doesn't necessarily reflect the outcome goals in clinical practice, because you may not be wanting to treat them so far to be able to be demonstrating such a dramatic change. And, you know, Jake, you're nodding, but, you know, I think <laughs> my patients will run out the room. They don't want to change. Hey, hey, <laughs> patients, patients don't want to look like they've had anything done, but they want to look better, right? Yeah. And it's always that, that, that yeah. um, you know, kind of, I guess, key um, outcome. Um, and this is where I think, you know, to bring in, so the photonumeric scale is the way to try and bring in a degree of objectivity to a subjective measurement. 
But if you can bring in a more um, quantifiable objective measure, and this is by looking at um, images and, and, and you know, writing the algorithms behind it to be able to measure that change on a smaller basis, but put the scientific me methodology behind it so that because at the end of the day, the regulators need to be confident that what you are actually demonstrating on that image change that's, um, um, you know, quantifiable by algorithms does actually relate to clinical meaningful change. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You need to anchor it to ensure that there is a demonstratable um, change that is, is, is perceived by both the healthcare professional and the patients. But I think that this is where, and let's say the computers will be able to pick up much with much greater sensitivity change that will be able to better articulate, I think, what um, the, the patients or the consumers are expressing, but you aren't necessarily able to pick it up with a 2D image. So I think there's a, a whole raft and this is a, something that, um, and um, um, I've got a, a, a great person in my team who's leading up the digital um, technology and strategy for Allegan Aesthetics R&D, but he, along with a, an extended work group, are, are working on this. And, and I think that this is where that there could be a way to be able to bring, I think, more accurate way of measuring and to degree eliminate some human errors that relates to, you know, trying to um, ascertain a change on a, on a photonumeric scale. And then there's options about simulation. So you can potentially look at, and you know, we're talking about you know, clinical trial times, you could potentially not need to have like a placebo control, for example, or a delayed treatment control that we use on the, on the device side, because you could simulate what that change would look like without having the active treatment. So that means that you're having less patients and, and patients don't particularly like to be in clinical trials if they're getting placebo, right? So <laughs> it, then with potentially, I want the good stuff. <laughs> it, yeah, they're not getting the good stuff, but, you know, so you potentially eliminate the need to kind of be running that um, arm, you know, where you're, you're using that comparative arm. And um, so there's that aspect. I think that there's there's ways, and we're looking at bringing it into um in in into training. So that's training both um with our injector training, but also looking at our investigator training. Um, I know that there's some um some people on your podcast have been speaking about the the use of um augmented reality as well as virtual reality, and 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 this is something that I think will be really key because safety and anatomical knowledge is absolutely paramount. And Jake, you you, I know that there's been lots of discussions as well on on your podcast about that but if you could really bring in some really um um clear ways and and this is what 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 um, we're developing up to to be able to um bring in anatomical training um related on you know using the different um applications of technology to be able to better visualize and um, where that and the the danger areas or the 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 vessels are sitting that's going to be a great opportunity as well so there's so many different opportunities and that's just on the research and development side i mean there's loads of them taking place as well on the consumer side i can see david's eyes lit up he, yeah. he's imagining some sort of hollow lens with <laughs> ultrasound and mri technology <laughs> built into the lenses. I was more impressed that, I mean, people, lots of people say they listen to our podcast, but you really have because you were referencing the episode we did with Professor Shafi Ahmed when we were talking about yeah, virtual reality. I, yeah. How fascinating was that chart? That was amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. amazing. Absolutely amazing. But it, but it's, it's important, I think, because, um, you know, one of the things with um, bringing in AI, for example, um, is that I think we can start to really move into what we call precision medicine. And yeah. precision medicine is by taking all the different factors of, individuals and kind of precision medicine kind of speaks to smaller groups and um, who have got similar um, traits and, and it's taking looking at, you know, their genetic and, um, and makeup, looking at epigenetics, which is the way that the DNA is expressed, looking at all these different levels and then being able to kind of 
uh, I guess, compute and analyze that data to then say this is this is what the predicted aging process for these individuals would be, and then to be able to tailor the potential um, treatment options for those individuals. And so that also would speak to diversity and inclusion um, in our clinical trials to be able to better define what treatment options are going to be more suited to different um, individuals and, and be able to really focus on those individual needs. So I think, I mean, the uh, the translation um, of the aging process is really complicated, and especially when you're taking internal and external factors into account. And so we're very interested in being able to understand all the different um, factors that influence that, uh, that then translate to the phenotype of individuals clustered together to be able to then provide, um, you know, some some very much um, focused and and um, potentially I use the word individual but individualized treatment options. I think it would be fantastic. You know, I keep on thinking about injectables here when you're saying that. You you can imagine a patient having some sort of scan or, or something pre-treatment and then you're sort of, as the injector, you're given either a map of, of where the volume deficiencies are, you're told the exact dose of the product to use and, you know, whilst, you know, when we're using certain products, we have a therapeutic window of, you know, this is what, what is supposed to happen at this level of, yeah. of using a drug. But if, if that could be tailored, how amazing would that be? Or having a needle that has an alarm that goes off when you enter a vessel before you enter. <laughs> that, yeah. Or just aspirate. Yeah. <laughs> so we joke oh, about aspiration every... I've, I've, I've heard, heard about that debate as well. But, you know, I think that this is where, I mean, it, you know, exciting is kind of an understatement. Yeah. There are just, the the, the technology um, that's um, now available is you know, very, very yeah. um, promising. Um, and as I say, we've got some, you know, great teams working across the board at looking how we can harness this and, and really kind of move the map, you know, drive aesthetic medicine forward using technology. Yeah. Well, technology is already making its way into operating theatres. My dad had an operation about a year ago where he had part of his bowel removed and they used the Da Vinci machine through keyhole surgery, the surgeons outside the room operating it. So it's not exactly AI, but it's, it's robotics. It's making things more precise, as you sort of said, and, you know, minimising down time and eliminating you know surgeon error or human error to a certain extent so the mind boggles as to what's going to be coming down down the pipeline in the not too distant future i can't wait for all yeah. these cool things stephanie <laughs> bring them to us <laughs> i know honestly it's, it's it's the it's it's just um there's there's um there's a lot happening so it's kind of watch this space and and i think that there's going to be some it's going to be a very exciting future yeah that i mean obviously you can't give specific examples but why would a product not make it to market apart from the obvious, like, you know, being dangerous or toxic or not doing what it's supposed to do? I mean, yeah. are there, you know, again, I've sort of got this image of like hundreds of things in the lab and, you know, one makes it every 15 years and, and the rest is just sort of canned. <laughs> so is that is that the reality or, or, or not really? Well, I mean, and I, I, I kind of am very conscious about um, speaking um, uh, on behalf of, of my colleagues who do all this um, incredible work at really being able to identify how we can um, take certain potential, um, you know, candidates forward. But the, I, I guess one of the things is about, um, you know, it, it, once again, keeping the end in sight. So, you know, we will look at particular, is about the chicken and the egg. Are, are we trying to um, develop something that is potentially targeting an unmet need? And we know that often the unmet needs are the most challenging or else there would be lots of, um, you know, treatment options there. So if if you're aiming to try and fix fix that particular unmet need, that's 
very difficult. And mm. so it's about the team. And I was on a call last night with um, some of my brilliant colleagues um, from across the um, R&D functions. And, and one of them described um, going to the her research dungeons yeah. <laughs> to go. And, 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 and I love that phrase. And, 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 and to, you know, to kind of have a play and to, to kind of really kind of continue to look at the understand and um, the activity and understand you know the different impact from a cellular basis and molecular basis to be able to see whether it truly can translate into that particular indication because sometimes you just don't get that fit and so you can have the molecules that potentially in theory we think are going to have an effect but it's about ensuring that that effect could be potentially translated into clinical meaningfulness as well hmm. the other thing is root of, a, of administration um you know there's there's no point of very kind of um, hypothetical example, but there's no point in having a product for hair regrowth that means that you're going to be injecting the scalp three times a day or you know that that sounds ridiculous but you know know. David would be up for it I reckon (laughs) (laughs) but you know you want to make sure that it is going to be an acceptable route of administration and have the convenience factor for and the patients taking it because and we know in therapeutics and disease and conditions that compliance is a big issue so you need to make sure and uh, compliance taking the medication you need to make sure that is a an offering that patients will comply to Mm -hmm. Joking aside, is there any anything that you give can give us an insight into? Uh, obviously not names, obviously not um, you know telling us when, but you know any any hints or yeah, yeah. Or, or things. You do a hand signal, we'll guess. We'll pay charades. We'll do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very conscious about kind of being limited with regards to what I can share with you. I think I mean one of the things I would just say is that we're continuing to advance our knowledge on skin aging and and kind of going back to what I was saying to you before. I mean, we are really um, advancing our knowledge. I mean, now as we're part of um, AbbVie, we work with, they they have a um, genetics research center. And so they're now our colleagues and our partners. And so we have got some fantastic collaborations going on with them. And it's been such an exciting opportunity for us to be really driving um, that side of things forward and looking at it from, you know, the skincare aspect as well as injectables and, and really understanding, as I say, how we can be better understanding the, the the needs from a more individual level to be able to then design and develop products that speak to that. And, and I kind of say that that is so, so important when we are looking at, um, uh, you know, developing offerings that do allow um, a more inclusive nature so that individuals can have their met needs according to yeah. all of the different aspects that make them diverse. I, of course, knew that you were going to say that, but I, I just thought the listeners are going to be screaming at their radios in their car <laughs> saying, you've got to ask her what's yeah. coming next and when's it coming and yeah. you know, what's it going to do. So I appreciate, I you know. Be, I, would, I, would be, I, would, I would be getting into trouble if I did oh, that and I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you were talking about like meeting individual needs and it sort of reminds me of the conversation we had with um, Guy Belouche from head like R&D from L'Oreal. And talking mm-hmm. about how they're, you know, going down that very same path with a lot of their skincare now and being uh, giving people the ability to sort of make their own or, you know, are using AI to design products that, that specifically suit that that person's requirements or the, and their anatomy. So it seems like that's where the general direction that we're going is more individualized care for people. Would that be accurate? I think that is accurate. And I think where it's sometimes a little bit difficult when we look at kind of um, certain indications and aesthetics, you know, these aren't disease conditions where you have got very clear 
um, you know, biomarkers, let's say, to be able to better understand the, the process and the progress. But this is where we are tapping into um, better understanding, you know, taking the principles of, of the, the, the mechanisms and the hallmarks of ageing and applying it there. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's where it will be going. And, and at the end of the day, it, it makes sense, right? Because not every product is going to suit everyone, as you both know very well. And so um, if you are somebody coming in and, and wanting to get treatment for whatever reason, you want to have a degree of guarantee that it's going to actually work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, to pivot away from R&D and to your conference, which you founded, which is Science of Aging, you mentioned it earlier. Just give the listeners a bit of a snippet into what it's all about, because I actually haven't unfortunately been able to come. I, I know you're in, you did a, a real event in London. I think it was You've been going for two years, right? Three years now. Three years. Okay, yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah. COVID screwed up my my chance to come and see you guys. Um, but you did a virtual one not not too long ago. So just tell us about yeah. what it what what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for um, you know mentioning that one again. So science of aging really is a concept where um, it's bringing the innovations and the discoveries and the research that are taking place in multiple different fields of aging research, and so. Very often it's looking at um, options for oncology or for chronic um, disease or um, related to the aging process and bring it into the aesthetics and medicine arena. So, um, as I say, kind of the, a lot of the research focuses around main principles um, around the hallmarks of aging. And that's looking at, um, for example, cell senescence and looking at epigenetic damage. It's looking um, at um, and telomere telomere attrition and um, all different aspects um, of being able to better understand all these common mechanisms that are related to and um, the aging process um, of the body and it's been a really fantastic um, experience and an opportunity because we have been bringing in luminaries from all different aspects of longevity and aging science and, and coming to present and and there may not necessarily be that obvious direct translation to aesthetic medicine just in the first instance, but there are some opportunities that can potentially be applied and further down the line. And actually, we know we've, we've also been interacting with some startup companies. So the startup companies get an opportunity to be part of um, the scientific um, symposia as well. And um, some of the startup companies have actually started to um, focus on the aesthetic side following um, the connection that they've had with us and, and, and having that discussion around really identifying some of um, the, the potential um, targets that could be applied to skin biology and skin aging. So it really was bringing in high-level, high-caliber science and having a, a conversation that actually I think is going to be so important for us in aesthetics. So as I say, I think we're going to be looking at everything holistically and I think aesthetic plays a big part in that to, to ensure that we are going to be living better, longer uh, and having healthier um, lives. And, you know, we look at kind of increasing health span and that's basically putting in life into your years and to make sure that you are um, avoiding and um, developing some of the um, chronic conditions associated with aging so uh, if possible are certainly reducing and um, the the the, the um and the possibility of developing them. So there's so there's a lot of really interesting and um, you know um, research that's shared. Our faculty are pretty much facu once faculty. You're always faculty. So we've had faculty and presenters coming back to present and giving us an update on um, the latest um, 
um, you know, results that they have um, been, um, you know, working on with their teams in the labs. Um, and we're also on LinkedIn and on Instagram. So please do come and, and follow us. It's a platform for healthcare professionals. And um, so there, there is that stipulation that um, it is um, only open to healthcare professionals. But I think it's just a, it's, it's been very successful from the point of view that it's, it's really the first of its kind bringing this discussion into aesthetic medicine and, and we're continuing to go out and with the pandemic we now have become experts in running virtual events as well <laughs> so we will continue to look at having an in-person um, event but we will have that link up virtually as well fascinating absolutely fascinating it's been a wonderful chat we've really appreciated you taking the time i'm, I'm glad we persevered through all of the uh hoops and all of the <laughs> compliance stuff to get there because i, and I was telling jake off, off air i was really looking forward to this chat because i find your area of, of study um and uh, what you're doing is just so fascinating and i think it's really going to change the way in which we approach aesthetic medicine moving into the future so thank you so much for taking the time we know you're extremely busy you wear many hats you've, you've got a family you, you're running teams all over the world so thank you for being so generous with your time and all of the uh, offline conversations that we've had getting to this point so thank you very very much yeah and i just echo that stephanie it's been a real pleasure to to get to know you and obviously amazing chat and uh, we look forward to sort of hearing more about what happens both you know with the conference and you know maybe we can uh get yeah. some amazing guests um you know from from there onto the podcast who knows yeah someone maybe david sinclair i don't know yeah just throwing some names out <laughs> <laughs> that's basically uh, uh, that's for david by yeah, the way yeah Big, David is yeah. a huge I'm, I'm fan. I'm fangirling over David we're, Sinclair. Yeah, we yeah. are. We're all fans. I have to say. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're, I'm, I'm. I'm a fan of all of our presenters. I have yeah. to say they're all incredible. Experts. But well, thank you so much from my side of things. I mean, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And again, thank you for your patience in getting this set up. And I just want to acknowledge my incredible team and my extended team and all my colleagues that I work with because I've been representing their errors possibly very badly. Um, but it is very much a team effort, and I'm continually just in awe of, of the, the work and the expertise and, and the knowledge of the individuals that I work with. And so um, I just want to give them a shout out because I have been representing a whole raft of areas that are definitely more their areas of specialty. Yeah. And we'll put all of your details at the bottom um, of the podcast. So we'll have links to the science of aging um, and, and well, what else are we going to put up there? Science of aging. We'll put. Um, I don't know if Stephanie's happy for her personal. I don't know yeah, if she's allowed. To, yeah. If we, anyone has a yeah, question no, for you directly. Yeah, no, I'm happy for that. Um, Absolutely. So I'm happy for thought I'd check before I said it, before I put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> thought I'd double check. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Um, have a good day. It's morning where you are and we're going to bed. Yes. Um, but we will yes. speak soon. And thank you for your time again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Bye, you. Stephanie. Thank you. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 